You're listening to Leading Innovation at Work, the Future of Business podcast with your host, Lori Rowlandson. Hi, everyone. In today's episode, we're going to discuss my top 10 predictions of how COVID is going to change the future and specifically around real estate and the real estate environment. Everybody has been uh, really focused in the last three to four months of earlier this year. And, you know, as COVID really came upon us, just really trying to wrap our head around it, what's involved, how do we cope? It's not visible. We're learning a lot as we go through this. And it's been a bit stressful. You know, we've been homebound and many of us, we've been in isolation. We've had loved ones that have been affected by this. And it's really turned our work lives upside down and completely changing how we work. New situations with no playbooks, no uh, guidebook to follow, and with all kinds of changes coming, which will create new, desu- new results and, and some sort of a new normal. And the new normal is a term we're hearing a lot of. And, and we know that a pandemic is not a one-time event. It just so happens that in our lifetime, this happens to be the biggest pandemic that we've experienced in our lifetime. And we will learn something from it. We will come out on the other side. But with any major disaster, there's been earthquakes, there's you know fires, we've had 9-11, and now we have COVID and, and different manifestations of that. But my point is, is we have wildfires and all kinds of major events that happen all the time. And while they are very unfortunate events and they're sad occurrences, inevitably what happens is we learn things that come out of that. We don't use that as an opportunity. We don't miss an opportunity to really learn something from it and and make ourselves be better. So with earthquakes, we get stronger building codes and better oversight in countries that are more prone to legislation. In fires, we're better in our emergency preparedness and we can save more lives in the emergency and exit procedures. 9-11 really changed a lot of security procedures around the world. And so did COVID. And, and then I think the other thing to underline is in 2008, when we had quite a, a significant recession in North America that created a cooling effect in the world, uh, some of the organizations that are in the top 100 companies in the world today were born in that time. So, you know, less than 12 years ago, these companies were just an idea. And a lot of them were spawned from a major event that occurred. So I'm, I'm in a way, I, I want to just show the yin with the yang and that there is some balance. And we have to look for the positivity and what we're going to learn out of this, as well as trying to manage and cope in the interim. But the punchline is, is, you know, will coronavirus change the future of work and how we work and even inside the office in the workplace? The answer is absolutely yes. And there's lots of evidence of that. And so today what I'm going to do is share with you some of my best tips, the top 10, as to some of those tips, some of those things that we are going to learn that are going to stick around for the future. So the things that we're doing today are going to have some longevity their best practices or things that we woke up and realized are things that we should have been doing the whole time. So number one is wider acceptance of remote work. So the interesting thing is we become much more reliant on knowledge workers in the last 30 years, much more than human labor to produce outcomes. It was only a hundred years ago that, you know, the horse was the main form of our transportation. You know, we didn't have a lot of electricity. We certainly didn't have iPads and some of the different things that we have today. But my point is, is that the workforce was really dependent on physical labor that produced some sort of an outcome, very much a 
manufacturing or agrarian lifestyle. And today it's very much tipped the other way around knowledge workers, which represent the majority of our workforce. According to World Bank, they estimate that 66% of the world's economy is based on something that you do with your mind, you know, thought leadership versus manufacturing and in agriculture. So the, I also think that the demand on knowledge workers is only going to increase from there. I mean, it's really increased significantly in the last 20 years. It's really been prevalent in the last 30 to 40, but it's really taken off to be the dominant form of, of how we contribute to society in the last 20 years. And that's really to align with uh, the internet and the technology curve. And I think we're about to go through another technology curve. As many of you hear me talk a lot about disruption and innovation and how much change we're about to be faced with in the next 10 years, artificial intelligence, blockchain, virtual reality, 3D printing, all of these are major disruptions that sound like they're far away and they're less than five years from really becoming mainstream. So the demand for knowledge workers is, is only going to increase and businesses are even more dependent on a knowledge worker to perform at a high level to grow and reinvent their business. So, you know, knowledge workers can work technically, probably in most cases from anywhere. And certainly the last three months has been evidence of that. The first part of 2020 is evidence that people can work remotely from their homes in isolation and still be productive. In fact, many people argue that they were much more productive because they were you know, avoiding commuting time and some of the other things that they would normally do in their routine. Although that in some instances there were things added, generally it was a time that really remote workers really shone and provided evidence that it can work. And I do see potentially this paving the way for gig workers and gig workers are individuals, we used to call them independent contractors, but they're individuals that work from gig to gig or assignment to assignment, they're freelancers. And I see much more acclimatization towards that in the future. So definitely much more acceptance of remote work, which allows you, you know, doesn't mean that, you know, you can work from your home half an hour away from the office. It potentially can mean you can work on the other side of the world. And so I think this is really going to pave the way to accelerate the trend of gig workers. But I think overall, we're going to see a lot more individual work happen at home and the office perhaps become more of a, a meeting center or a, a place where you go to collaborate and innovate and ideate with your, your colleagues. And uh, the office is not where you do individual work, which we all acknowledged it was not ideal for at, before anyway. The number one complaint in the office was it was too noisy and visual distractions and a lot of resistance to uh, mobility kind of workplace strategies and design. Well, we've got evidence that it works. And, and if we change the way that the purpose of the office, so we allow people to work remotely, then we can reimagine the office that just as a, as a great meeting space. By the way, another one of our complaints was not enough meeting space. So if we turn, the meet, if we turn our offices into 90% meeting space so we can collaborate, facilitate agile work, um, that would be a really nice balance. And I think really help people work where they're most productive. Number two, of course, is, is set upon the foothold of point number one, is rationalization of real estate portfolios. And if you're looking at the vodcast version of this, you can see an empty office with empty cubicles. And I'm sure this has probably looked like your office in the first part of 2020, if you, if you work in the office environment. Empty. Nobody there. Very few essential workers, very few organizations that I've seen had to have people actually work in the office and 
It tended to be for very specific reasons. It was, um, they hadn't digitized and they were still very file and paper dependent. In some instances, we have clients that were dependent on the physical security of the office environment. So files or information could not be taken out of the physical office for security reasons and information and physical security reasons. And, you know, there might be specialized equipment that is too large to be removed or not practical to move at home. So other than that, and I'm not talking about preference, I'm talking about why people really do need to go to the office, maybe some printing, but not, I think I, we're going to see a big change of that in the way that people work. What that's going to create is a rationalization of the real estate portfolios. And by that, I mean, if we don't need all of that space to accommodate individual workstations, people are comfortable with working at home. And I'm seeing surveys, people surveying their employees, 70s and 80 percentile of employees want to continue to work remote. That frees up a lot of space at the office, either to absorb growth or it's also to reimagine the space, reprogram it so it becomes meeting areas instead of dedicated to individual workstations. So if you ever wondered about what your real estate potential was for utilization, and let's, you know, it's funny, you know, I remember the conversations, uh, the fourth quarter of, of 2019, people fussing about, oh, should we go from a 1.1 or a 1.2 ratio of people to workstation to a 1.4? Is that too aggressive? Well, we've got the bl doors blown off that, those paradigms, right? We have a huge ratio of employees that could work remotely. And then that really tells us what our real estate potential is. And it really allows us to not bring people back the same way that they were before, to really reimagine how we bring people back to the office. What is the purpose of the office? Is it a place for individual work, which it's not really well suited for? People are happier at home. Maybe we give them tax breaks to work remotely. We don't have to pay for all that space and the fit up and expend all that carbon and all the maintenance costs, right? Have them work at home where they're productive. Um, scale back the office, keep an office because you still need a place to meet with clients and bring people together to create a workplace community, but perhaps turn the office into a conference center just for your employees, a meeting center where they, they participate and collaborate in the forming and norming phase of new teams. And then once they get into the norming and performing stage, maybe they can work elsewhere. But I'm sharing with you one idea of many on how to reimagine your space. The one counsel I would say is just don't go back to what the same routine is that you had before. And a lot of organizations are using this time to jump the curve. And it's a, it's a great opportunity as well as there's stress, but this too shall pass and we'll get better at this. So the rationalization of real estate portfolios also creates a huge amount of benefits for employees, happier, healthier employees working remote, better life balance, better ability to juggle their personal priorities while remaining highly productive with less dependency on office space, less commute, and less expending of, of that carbon footprint. It's, it's, there's win-win-win all the way around. Giving, and as I mentioned earlier, you can even go as far as giving a bursary to employees for their home office, which is way cheaper than fitting up an office. And, you know, making employees, giving them the tools so that they're happy and healthy to work remotely. And I predict a, a huge amount of a swing the other way on rationalization of, of real estate portfolios. I mean, just before COVID, we were seeing extreme stress of supply in certain key markets. 
And I think what we're going to see is, is a relaxation of that. People were migrating towards the cities, the cost of condos and real estate properties was being driven up on the residential side and the amount of vacancy and supply of office space was just all at a, a record low in a number of key markets. So I think we're gonna see that change. I think we're gonna see that change going forward. All right, let's keep going. Number three is an increase of collaborative technologies. And wow, if, uh, if you hadn't practiced them before, you're probably a pro at this point in the after the first quarter of 2020, really leveraging great tools like Slack and Teams, for example, that enable virtual Teams and Zoom and you know, WebEx, any form of, of how we collaborate. One of my favorites, and again, there, there's a number of really good ones out there, but our company has embraced Teams. And it's been terrific. I've noticed a decrease in my email, much easier to find things, easier to collaborate. And it has all of the great WebEx abilities. So the ability to see your colleagues while you're working remotely, I think I, I don't think I could ever go back to a boring two-dimensional teleconference call. I really enjoy the video and I encourage my team to comb their hair and be present on video. So you can see that body language and that humanity. As we all know, 90% of human communication is nonverbal. It's with your facial expressions and, and your body language. So it's important to see that and build in that, those visual cues. I think what we're also going to see is the internet is going to become a mandatory utility. So some of you have perhaps expressed or seen a little bit of stress on the system and you know, a little bit of garbly gook and some of the, the conferences, the videos weren't always entirely smooth or the quality of the call. I think what we're going to see, and especially as 5G rolls out and addresses that concern and that gap, we're going to see the, the internet as a mandatory utility, just absolutely required to be able to enable working from anywhere. Number four is changing the way we measure employees. This has been a beef of mine for a while. And if you've heard some of my podcasts last year, I've, I crossed over and was doing a lot of things related to employee experience in HR last week. And one of the healthy debates I, I had with some HR colleagues was around changing the archaic way that we measure employee performance. And particularly my beef is with the annual performance review. It's just completely not useful anymore. It's it's almost an anachronism in this time of agile and how quickly things are changing and how pr quickly priorities need to change and you need to pivot and be able to respond to things. So those annual reviews and goals just seem like an anachronism. They're just not useful. So uh, what I do see, especially with people working remote, is managers getting past the paradigm of you must be sitting at the office to be productive. Like, let's face it, people can be on their phone, surfing Amazon, buying shoes or doing whatever, Facebook, social media, whatever. It doesn't necessarily mean that just because they're sitting in the office that they're being productive, right? And so I think switching to an outcome-based or an evidence-based productivity system of our employees is long overdue. And I think that that's going to give managers a lot of comfort in managing their virtual workforce. One of the questions I get asked frequently is, how do you measure productivity of employees? And it's a bit of a cheeky answer, but I, I ask them, I counter it with a question, how did you measure productivity before? And why did it suddenly become a real estate issue now that people are working remotely? And the truth of the matter is, is I think we relied too much on those visual cues of seeing people in the office as a surrogate for managing performance and not 
quite keeping on top of things the way that we, we really could. But I really like the discipline of remote work management is going to create. And part of that is that outcome-based productivity. A quick tip that I use is every Monday with my team, Monday morning, first meeting that I have of the week, meet with my team, we do a round table, and I ask them, what are the three things you accomplished last week? And what are the three things you're going to accomplish this week? And we, we talk about that based on our bigger priorities, but if something comes up and we have to reprioritize to be agile and respond to something that's even more important, it gives us the discussion forum to do that. And in a, in a very agile way, it also holds employees accountable. Again, this is a great tactic for virtual workforce. I really like this because it really says it's an evidence based of outcomes of what you actually did. And uh, an outcome, an item that doesn't qualify for a three by three, for example, is I had a meeting or I attended a meeting. Now, what were the actions? What are you going to have complete by when? So really forcing that closed loop discipline, I think, is, is how we engage employees and manage their performance, give them guidance in a much more frequent feedback manner, give them uh, coaching in a much more frequent way, as well as guiding them to be accountable to, towards their priorities. I think we're gonna see more of that. And the virtual workforce, I think, is gonna create a demand like we've never seen. We just won't have a choice. There were some resistors about working in the office, but I think we're, we're probably crossed that threshold now, or at least many organizations have. So that means managing our employees differently and employee engagement and experience and that virtual culture, I think you're gonna see a lot more about that. But this particular point, number four, is about how we manage our employees through outcome-based productivity. Number five is a focus on risk management and a lot of really interesting discussions around risk. This is something that I see varying degrees of commitment in, in organizations. Some are very supportive. Of course, it depends on what their core business is but I see some that just pay lip service to it. They just sort of do the bare minimum and, and uh, sort of like you know, a self-paid insurance policy kind of thing. If it happens, we'll deal with it in the moment. And you know, there, I, I don't wanna comment on either one of those strategies, but one of the things that does come to light is some of the, the risks that we do need to consider. And I'll share with you a couple that I, I've seen with several organizations. One is key man risk. And what I mean by that is one individual that knows everything about a specific location and has been working there forever and they've had a hard time backfilling. And um, that person, I'm going to share with you a true story. I'll keep it anonymous. But the individual is uh, in their early 70s and literally has been working at a site for uh, 40 plus years. And his wife, who's retired and had been coaching him to retire, but he hadn't given it up yet. She unfortunately contracted COVID and she became quite sick. And so she had to quarantine at home and when she wasn't in the hospital, but obviously created a, a situation for him where he couldn't go to work. And that was a catastrophe for work because they relied on him so much. And we had to teach him how to do FaceTime. <laughs> he was holding up the his phone to HVAC units on FaceTime and things like that. But I, again, all of this to say what it sheds light, light on is if you have any critical failure points in your organization based on uh, knowledge workers that are familiar, this really shone a spotlight on that. And we had to scramble pretty quickly. I work for an outsourcing company. So 
we had to scramble pretty quickly to quickly come up with additional resources that we could fill in that had a similar skill set, obviously nowhere near the level of innate knowledge around the building that this guy did, but very smart people. And they were able to have a, a conversation and get instructions and do some training to be able to continue to deal with the situation in the building at the time. So we're starting to see, I was talking to the CEO of CORE, an outsourcing organization, and he's starting to see more interest in outtasking or outsourcing uh, regionally to be able to mitigate some of those risks. The other thing I'll say is around risk management is that whenever a major event occurs, you're always really glad that you invested in that risk management office. Practice your business continuity planning, BCPs, run through drills, practice in all kinds of scenarios because things will happen. We're just, you know, uh, unfortunately, we're getting more climate events. There's fires, earthquakes, things happen, right? And just to be ready, pandemic is no exception. So please plan for reoccurrences. There, will, there definitely will be a second wave. Uh, we hope not a third, but until there's a vaccine, we should expect ebbs and flows in occurrences. So please continue to invest in your risk management planning, business continuity planning, and mitigation because it's, it's no fun to deal with these situations reactively. And I speak from experience. Our company I work for, my day job, is health and safety is their number one focus. We start meetings with safety moments. It's a, it's a big investment that we make. And our team dealing with our emergency management team is just and I guess I don't sound objective, but they are amazing. And I'm so grateful for them every day because they have thought of things that we would have never thought of, and they've already got procedures and have anticipated and the expertise to be able to deal with it. So I do anticipate more fo focus on risk management going forward as we have more climate events, we have more physical security issues, information security, just a lot more on risk. And I, I see people taking it seriously now that this has been held as a mirror in front of us. Number six is focus on virtual culture. One of the very difficult things that's happened in the first quarter of 2020 was mental health issues, a huge amount of challenges with people feeling lonely, isolated, scared, not sure what to do. There is no rule book for this, right? And a lot of anxiety and that extended to our, our, our employee community. And so continuing to build that sense of camaraderie and culture, like what is that culture you want to create and how do you foster that? It's easier if you have those drop-in or casual interactions at the office. It's much harder if you do it virtually. If, you, if everybody is working, you know, in Zoom meetings or Teams or, you know, on the phone, it's much harder because we tend to be much more utilitarian when we communicate that way. We tend to communicate for a specific meeting. There's no pleasantries. Hey, how's your weekend? There's a lot less of that. And, you know, the potluck lunches, stuff like that. And the things that we normally did at the office to interact, just shooting the breeze and just interacting with people, you build that relationship. If we are going to move to more of a virtual workforce, this, we're going to have new challenges. I mean, there's going to be some benefits and many of you are familiar with them. But I think one of the challenges is fostering that rapport and trust. Like how do you create that high performing team culture? I think we're gonna see a lot more intentional focus. HR is gonna get way more sophisticated at how we manage and foster and cultivate and measure our virtual culture to make sure we're not sacrificing 
working remotely and convenience from things, important topics like innovation and productivity with high performing teams, loyalty. How do you, how loyal do you feel to a company if you're just working from your home and you don't interact with anybody else? You don't feel any attachment to it or less attachment to it, I'll say. So a lot more focus on HR programs that get way more sophisticated on virtual culture. I'm already starting to see some companies pop up that really focus on this, really deep consultants in this area. And I really encourage that. But we can't sacrifice innovation. Innovation often benefits from collaboration in person. And so I mentioned earlier using uh, the office as an ideation or an innovation center versus where you would do individual work. This is maybe where you bring people together, maybe still have a mix of virtual and together, but at least give people the opportunity where they can gather and meet and be productive at those times based on the functions that they're doing, again, in that forming and storming phase of their team building, and just to allow them to start to build that rapport and trust that fuels that high-performing team and gets everybody to work in that flow. Number seven is a much stronger focus on well-being and health and safety. And I say that for a couple of dimensions, not for the obvious one that you think about with communicable diseases and a lot of focus on washing hands and wearing masks. And I think we're going to continue to see a lot of focus on health and safety, touchless standards at the office and things like that. But beyond the obvious of changing the building standard to accommodate health and safety procedures. One of the other complaints that I heard from my colleagues in the first quarter of 2020 is sitting around and working all the time, I'm getting fat. It's like my, my, my work clothes don't fit anymore and I'm not getting out exercising enough. And in the first quarter of the year, depending on where in the world you lived, maybe the weather wasn't great. Maybe it was still winter or it was too cold to go outside. Um, or you just weren't allowed to go outside. And so people were housebound and they weren't getting the physical activity. So I think, you know, if you follow one of my favorite people on this topic is Rex Miller and another one is Leah Stringer, but both of them have been on this bandwagon for some time, even before COVID popped up around the health and well-being of our employees. So it's around your mental wellness and your physical fitness and just some of the statistics around how work in the last 20 years as we become addicted to technology to deliver our work has really done a number on our, our, our physiology and um, the amount of chronic disease that we're seeing show up in 20, 20 kids in their 20s and 30s. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's catching up very quickly. So I see a lot more focus on that. Maybe, you know, employers, instead of offering a, a gym membership subsidy, maybe a work at home program, and there's lots of online fitness programs. And there's some really great equipment, you know, mirror and Peloton. So you can you know, Fitbit, maybe you can do some things with your team members, but really just encouraging that well-being and it's much, much harder at home. And I speak from myself as well is it's been very, very challenging to get out and, and remain in that discipline. You also want to make sure that people don't think that you're at home, you know, not doing anything. So you want to be available. People tend to work harder when they're at home. And that means that they sacrifice time with their families or their physical health. And we don't want that to happen. I think we're still hitting our stride in this area, finding that right balance. Um, it ebbs and flows, but so physical well-being, but as well, and mental well-being, as well as health, health and safety, I think are going to continue to be a stronger focus.
couple of quick things to underline, because I do think it's an important topic, a few dimensions of it. I was talking to the vice president of um, IWBI about a month ago. He, he spoke on one of my other podcasts, Stephen Brown, and I took so many notes in his, in his podcast. He was, if you missed that one, please go back and listen to it. He was amazing. And one of the things he shared uh, in an early spoiler alert in February was that they are changing the standard to accommodate and address communicable diseases and just the overall pandemic element and ingredients in the well building standard, which is very welcome. So I think the well, like LEAD at the beginning, LEAD was maybe a little bit slow to get on board and then it just completely took off and it's a terrific standard. I think well was on that path. It was a little slower, but I think they're going to see a lot of interest and a lot of focus. And I thank them for the service that they do for our industry and setting the the best practices and standards that they do. And I'm not involved in that organization. I'm not paid by them at all. I just really believe in the message that they provide and what they're doing and the great service that they're doing. Okay. And then, you know, by now I'm an, I'm an avid reader and, and if, again, Rex Miller has been on some of my, my past podcasts and I just think the world of him, he's terrific. If you haven't read The Healthy Workplace Nudge, I, I really encourage you to do. It's one of the most coherent books that I've ever read that really helped me speak to the CFOs of our organization around the mandate and the business case of investing. And it was the first book I always knew was a good thing directionally but I love the way Rex explained it. And it really helped me take those elevator pitch explanations around the business case to avoid getting it deprioritized by the CFO, really help quantify it and then and gain other advocates in the organization to be able to uh, gain support. So I think we're going to just slingshot. We're going to leapfrog over some of the slower periods of inception of this program. And I think we're going to see it accelerate even more, which is wonderful. Number eight is learning and development. You may have noticed the glut of webinars that have been available over the last, uh, the first quarter of of 2020 in the the last four or five months or so at the time I'm recording this. And uh, that's terrific. I think that's great. I have, uh, many of you know, I'm a a chronic learner. I just enrolled in the night night class. Uh, Maybe I'm crazy, but for 3D printing, but we can't ever let our foot off the throttle for continuous learning. There is so much change coming in the next 10 years, more change than we have in the last 40. So we better get really good at upskilling ourselves. And if, if you're in the first part of your career, please develop a love for learning, whether it's audiobooks or whatever, whatever webinars, Ted talks, whatever it is, please find a love for learning and what suits you. But more options is is better and whatever the forum is whatever the option is just find one that suits you embrace it and continue with it throughout your career it's essential to your survival the things you're learning now may not be in use in 10 years and it's crazy how much can happen in 10 years it's crazy but i'm seeing statistics like 85 percent of the technologies we're going to be using 10 years from now haven't even been invented yet and that means the jobs that we're going to be doing are based on technologies haven't that haven't been invented yet one of the reasons why i'm taking 3d printing at night school is i want to be an expert on that i want to, and i think it is one of the biggest disruptors that we have facing us in the next five years in supply chain and more to come on that but please develop a love for learning I really think that we're going to see a pivot in learning away from boring 
to very engaging and almost a gamification. And I think augmented reality is going to play a role to really gamify how we're learning. And I'm excited for that change because learning doesn't have to be boring. It can be exciting and then really show people how to apply it. And the traditional academic way of memorization, writing an exam, I also think needs to be refreshed as well. Uh, so I, I think that all of this also leads towards taking a leadership role in your personal brand and online influence and development. And so again, as I said, if you're in the first part of your career, you need to take a leadership role in investing in your development. It doesn't matter what you do, just do something forward thinking and find your way. I don't know anything about 3D printing yet, but in three years, I, I guarantee you, I'll be one of the uh, most informed people about it because I'm really gonna throw myself into it. But my point is you need to do the equivalent for whatever matters to you, whatever your topic is. It doesn't have to be 3D printing. But I really encourage you to build your brand online. And you do that through learning and development. And I'll talk about this in another session, but I think influence and online influence is um, one of the future social currencies and looking for jobs. So it's not just upskilling your skills to be relevant for a job, but being a destination of where um, great companies want to hire because you've got such a great industry influence and brand. So be prepared to retread your career with ongoing learning. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. One of the really positive things that I think has happened out of COVID in the last few months is an accelerated use of disruptive technologies. And these are things, some of the things I've seen were probably several years away from maturing or at least becoming a bit more mainstream. But just through sheer perseverance, lack of supply, high demand, pricing, um, that's created the conditions to allow more innovation in. And the, um, the story that really inspired the book that Barb and I are writing right now, which is 100 plus ways we predict that the future of, of work will change post-COVID. It was really inspired by this, this boy that you see, this Boy Scout in the top left of the screen if you're in the vodcast. And but basically what he did was he had a 3D printer and he was at home with his family like everybody else and he wanted to contribute. He wanted to do something. And he wanted to specifically do something for the medical and EMS um, demographics. And he was noticing that a lot of them are getting face, facial sores from wearing masks because they can't remove the masks. And uh, it was creating rubbing through their ears and creating great uh, abrasions on their face. So he um, fired up his 3D printer. He downloaded a free program for printing uh, facial mask protectors. He printed them all up and he donated a pile of them to the hospital and, you know, syndicated that program to a number of other people and people across the country were doing it. I was so inspired by that, not for many reasons. One, uh, you know, a 10-year-old kid taking that leadership role, that kid's got a bright future. I love that story. But, you know, using innovation to meet a demand, I thought was just a genius move. We're seeing lots more of that. So not just 3D printing. We saw people starting to 3D print N95 masks. And we saw augmented reality. One of the articles you'll see, again, if you're on the vodcast, but I'll share it in the, uh, in the book and in the community, was uh, a senior vice president of a company virtually shaking hands. So in the picture, he's wearing VR goggles and he's holding out his hand. He's virtually shaking the avatar of the person that he's just signing the contract with, which is very important for their culture to shake hands and go through that next step. 
uh, whereas other cultures, maybe you don't have to go through that formalities, but it is an important part. So they signed this official business agreement in this virtual re reality room, which is kind of interesting. So virtual reality is, is the other one that I think is uh, one of the big disruptors we're going to be faced with in the next less than five years. And I think we're going to see some really interesting things from gaming crossing over into mainstream Fortnite, you know, some of the, the things that they've experimented with, which is a video game. If you have a nephew, your nephew plays Fortnite, <laughs> ask him about it. But it's, um, it's really interesting to see how they're using the same principles and popularity and crossing it over into business. So I love that. I love that. And then we're also seeing, you know, other things like geofencing and facial recognition and artificial intelligence. Uh, China was one of the uh, um, countries that used facial recognition and fever detection systems for safe work launch and also used geofencing of employees. And again, some of these are a bit controversial and I'll, and I'll get to privacy next, number 10 which is, I think we're gonna have a lot more interesting discussions on personal and, and private data. What is personal and private data? So in the example I just mentioned to you earlier, facial recognition, fever detection, geofencing, so that it would identify if you're standing too close to somebody who you're, is not part of your domicile. If you are in quarantine, if you've left your domicile, very big brotherish, right? But this was how certain countries were able to flatten the curve so fast. Fairly draconian methods, but it worked. So obviously that is not going to fly in other countries where even the simplest things are not really, uh, people are not really comfortable with. So things like temperature checks, I'm getting into some really interesting discussions right now. Like, is my temperature my private and personal information? If I come to work, do you have the right to take my temperature? Well, if it's your workplace policy and it's a condition of entering, I guess so. But we're starting to get into these really interesting philosophical and moral debates, right? Whereas people are generally very secretive and don't want that information to be used for, for um, you know, difficult purposes. And of course, that information in the wrong hands can really be a problem. And we're starting to see more biotech related technologies. Again, we've really jumped the curve in the last, in the last few months, and we're starting to see biomedical, you know, remote teledoctors and things like that. And so that information goes to into a cloud somewhere and, you know, who can access it? Will I be judged if they know that I take certain medications or that I've been diagnosed with a certain condition? So there's lots of controversy around it. So, you know, the wash your hands monitors, maybe that's not so bad, but if you know, if your boss knows that you're located or if you have spyware on the computers to see if they're working or the medical history, some of these things start to get into personal and private data. And it's very different depending on demographics and country legislation. So we're in for some really wild discussions in this topic and it's gonna come fast and furious. And by the way, it's, it's already here, right? You're, if you drive to work, you're, you probably are photographed at least 50 times driving to work. Google knows if you speed, <laughs> they know, uh, you know, how fast you drive to work. They know what route you take. Phones track a lot of what we, right? Okay. Well, that's just a sampling of the top items that are in the book that's coming out. Uh, it'll be sometime in June that we release it, June 2020. Please follow us on LinkedIn and uh, express your interest if you're interested in being notified 
when that particular item is released and we're happy to just send you out a reminder email without any pressure whatsoever. Well, that's it for today. Thanks so much for your time and stay well, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to Leading Innovation at Work, the Future of Business podcast. Hey, if you have questions or comments about this episode, reach out to us via our website at www.leadinginnovationatwork.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please hit like and subscribe on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you tune in. You can find me, Lori Rowlandson, on LinkedIn or via my website at laurierowlandson.com. That's L-O-R-R-I-R-O-W-L-A-N-D-S-O-N dot com. Thank you for listening.